Jeremiah 49, verses 1 through 39, the topic, a series of God's judgments against Judah's enemies encourages us that we can be more than conquerors as we walk with him. The title of our message, keep your friend close, but your enemies conquered. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we approach the throne, uh, the place of grace and mercy for our time of need, we admit that we are a needy people. Some more than others, but all of us, Lord, in need of uh, a touch from your love, of your grace, to sustain us, Lord, for difficult days that we're going through or that are on the horizon. We're gonna talk about battling fierce enemies today, Lord, uh, and, and for sure we're in a battle, but we also wanna remember that the victory has been won and that you are battling for us. And that our part, Lord, so much is to just remember and recognize what you've done on the cross and rising from the dead. Easter has passed for 2013, Lord, but every day really is an experience for us of the empty tomb as we remember that you've risen from the dead or seated at the right hand of the Father, that we are seated with you as it were spiritually and that we are to set our affection on things above where you dwell anxiously awaiting and anticipating your imminent return. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. If you think of yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ as being surrounded by fierce enemies, then you'll get something out of today's text. Judah was surrounded by fierce enemies, and we're gonna see six of them this morning. Do you ever wonder why God left those enemies in the land for her to battle? Well, the answer is found in a passage in the Old Testament book of Judges. In chapter three of that book, you read this. It says, now all these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known of the wars in Canaan, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. God wasn't testing them to see them fail, quite the opposite, it was to show them success. It was one thing to hear stories like the one about Joshua marching on Jericho and the walls falling down by the miraculous intervention of God. It was quite another thing to experience that sort of thing by faith for yourself. We too are surrounded by enemies. It is said of us as believers, and I'm taking this from Ephesians chapter two, Paul the Apostle is the author and he says, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Our enemies are the world, the devil, and our flesh. He calls it the course of this world in that Ephesians passage. It refers to the ways of culture and society that oppose the Lord. There are ungodly trends in the world, things like materialism and naturalism, the desire for instant gratification and more, things that once ruled all of our passions but are now defeated in Jesus Christ. That There's a warfare at work as the world and its system tries to overwhelm us. The devil is real and he rules here, we see, as the prince of the power of the air. He's elsewhere called the god of this world. With him are legions of fallen angels we now call demons. He also influences non-believers to be against us, here called the sons of disobedience. And then there's our flesh. 
That isn't just our physical body, but it's rather a principle in our bodies that remains after we get saved, demanding that we fulfill its appetites or that we satisfy normal appetites in sinful ways. These remain as enemies for us to battle so that we might experience firsthand the power of God when we walk by faith ourselves. Revivalist and author Vance Havner probably had something like this in mind when he said, the enemy surrounds us, don't let one escape. That's, I love that. I, if you get into that, the enemy surrounds us, it's our victory, don't let one escape. Surrounded from without by the world and the devil and having an enemy within, we are not conquered, but we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, we'll encounter six of Judah's enemies, and for each one of them, I'll organize my thinking around two points. Number one, there's always something about your enemy that appeals to you, but number two, there's always something about God that he reveals to you. Let's take a look, first of all, with the nation of Ammon, the Ammonites, verse one, against the Ammonites. Thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound and her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall, be taken possession, shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is plundered. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Lament and run to and fro by the walls. For Milcom shall go into captivity with his priests and his princes together. Why do you boast in the valleys, your flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, who trusted in her treasure, saying, who will come against me? Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts, from all those who are around you. You shall be driven out, everyone headlong, and no one will gather those who wander off. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. By asking a series of questions, Jeremiah focused on Ammon's major sin. The history here is that the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, and the Ammonites, assuming that Israel was done, that they were not coming back, that they were through, they moved into the Israelite cities uh, as if the Israelites had no sons or heirs who would ever return to the land. God announced that days were coming when an enemy would attack Ammon's capital of Rabbah. Rabbah would become nothing but ruins and Israel would drive out the Ammonites who had settled. The people of Rabbah would put on sackcloth and mourn. Milcom might be a reference to their king, the king of the Ammonites, or it might be a different name for their god who was Molech. Here in this opening stanza, you see the world, the devil, and the flesh all at work. The culture surrounding the Jews worshiped a false god, Molech, inspired by the devil. So you have the world and the devil, and that worship appealed to the Jews, appealed to their flesh, because among other things, it involved having sex with the priests and priestesses of Molech. And so that's a picture in, uh, in ancient Israel of how all that was working. The God of this world rose up a nation, an idol in that nation, the Ammonites, and appealed to the fleshly nature of the Israelites uh, and they were drawn into it. Now, what God revealed to them is unspoken but understood. As his people, they would again possess the inheritance that the Ammonites had squatted upon. 
It was given to them by God through Abraham. He would see to it that they had it forever. When the world and the devil appeal to your flesh to bow down to some idol, it would do you well to realize that you are promised an inheritance in heaven. You build your heavenly inheritance by seeking first the kingdom of God and building alongside God while you are here on the earth. One day, you're gonna stand before the Lord and you're gonna be rewarded. Someone once said, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Don't allow your enemies to keep you from building wealth in heaven with their lame appeals to temporary pleasures. Think about that meeting that you're going to have with the Lord. Have a wonderful fear of the Lord, a a trembling and excitement at that moment that you didn't waste any of the time that the Lord gave you to further his kingdom by being drawn off by some Molech that made some appeal to your flesh, all of which has been conquered and crucified already at the cross with Jesus Christ. The next nation is Edom. As we begin, uh, verse seven, and it's a long section, so uh, please bear with me as we read through it. Against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dadan, for I will bring calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy until they have enough? I have made Esau bare. I've uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His descendants are plundered, his brethren and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive, and let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, behold, those whose judgment was to uh, was not to drink of the cup, have assuredly drunk. And you, are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. And all its cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her, and rise up to battle. For indeed, I will make you small among nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has deceived you, the pride of your heart, O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. Edom also shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all its plagues. As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, And their neighbor, says the Lord, no one shall remain there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom and his purposes that he has uh, proposed against the inhabitants of Taman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their dwelling places desolate with them. The earth shakes at the noise of their fall. At the cry, its noise is heard at the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Basra, the heart of the mighty men of Edom. In that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pain. 
Now the name Edom was given to Esau, the firstborn son of Isaac and the twin brother of Jacob, when he sold his birthright to his brother for a meal of lentil soup. It's kind of a, 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 an illustration of the entire life of Esau and the people who sprang from him. He had no concern for spiritual things, and so when his brother said, sell me the birthright and I'll give you a bowl of top ramen, he said, yeah, man, that stuff is really good. I know it's not good for you, but I love that stuff. And and that was his identity when it came to the things of God. The country which the Lord subsequently gave to Esau was called the country of Edom, and his descendants were called the Edomites. So when you see Esau or Edom, Uh, That's the individual. The Edomites are the people who descended from him. To make matters a little bit more confusing, Edom as a nation was also called Mount Seir and Idumea. And so sometimes the descendants of Esau are called Idumeans. Edom was a mountainous country. Her strong natural defenses gave her a false sense of security. That's why God talks a lot in his judgment about uh, you know, being up high and looking down below. The famous rock city of Petra was part of the kingdom of Edom. Uh, it, it's a city that was believed to be impenetrable. You had to get into it by a very small opening that could easily be defended. What I love about all of these impenetrable, impregnable, unconquerable cities and nations is that all of them have been penetrated and conquered. Uh, When the Lord says, I am done with you, then he uh, rises up a people or a nation or something within that nation uh, to conquer itself. Uh, In the period of time between the Old and New Testaments, desert tribesmen called the Nabataeans drove the Edomites from their land. The people of Edom were forced to migrate into southern Judah and that's when they began being called the Idumeans. Uh, they were subjugated and uh, they were made to accept Judaism and the Edomites ceased to be a distinct nat- uh, national group. Now we learn in verse seven, at the very beginning of this, the Edomites were known for their prudent counsel and their wisdom. But theirs was obviously a worldly wisdom, a fleshly wisdom, because it didn't do them any good Uh, in their walk with the Lord. And that's our point of contact. The wisdom of the world is appealing. The wisdom of God can seem foolish in comparison. Take almost any of the great characters or stories in the Bible and you have an example of this. Let's take Abraham. Uh, He's as good an example as any. Abraham believed God and he set out for the promised land. If you'd been a neighbor of Abraham's, Uh, Maybe you come over, you know Abraham is leaving for the promised land. You come over with a rice cake or something for the journey. Say goodbye because he's been a good neighbor. You say, Abraham, you know, just want to say goodbye. So where are you headed? Headed to the promised land. Really, where is that? I have no idea. How are you going to get there? I'm going to walk by faith with God. Yeah, but how are you going to get there? He goes, one step at a time. Well, that's foolish. Or is it? It's the wisdom of God. Then a little bit later on, Abram, Abraham has his na- or Abram is his name. He has his name changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. So he's out in these heathen territories, these pagan cultures, and they say, yeah, who are you? I am Abraham, the father of many nations. Really? How many children do you have? Well, I have this one kid, Ishmael, that God doesn't recognize, and then I have Isaac. How many nations? Yeah, and none. 
but I've got a promise that my descendants are gonna be as numerous as the sand and the sea and the stars in the sky. It's a good thing they didn't have mental health in those days. <laughs> this is the kind of thing uh, that you get on the radio and you say 5150. A little bit later on, now at least he's got the son, Isaac, and he gets up one morning and they head off to Mount Moriah and they're climbing the mountain to make a sacrifice and Isaac says, hey dad, uh, here's the knife and here's the wood, where's the sacrifice? The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Meantime, I'm to tie you up on the altar and kill you. Okay, I don't know who's dumber, Abraham or Isaac. Because Isaac's like 33 years old at the time. But an angel stays his hand, and it becomes actually the most beautiful Old Testament picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by his father on the cross. And see, we know all that, and we think, man, these are fantastic stories. Look at the wisdom of God. Who would have thunk it? But from one perspective, it's absolute foolishness. And here's the, here's the thing. God loves to take the foolish things to confound the wise. We are the foolish things that he does take to confound the wise. Not fools, but foolish from the world's point of view. And that's the reveal from God in these verses. You're gonna be called upon as a follower of Jesus Christ to make choices that will seem foolish to your friends and family. In fact, can you think of something in your life, some choice or decision that your non-believing friends and relatives considered foolish? I hope so, because it's par for the course if you are on a walk with God. It's just the territory that you inhabit. Now, Damascus is next on our list, referring not just to the ancient city, but to the Aramean people who were settled there. Against Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are ashamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. Why is the city of praise not deserted, the city of my joy? Therefore her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall be consumed in the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And so here we see that Damascus and two other Aramean cities, Hamath and Arpad, were to be judged. What's revealed here for us? Well, I think it's in verse 25. First, let's find an alternate translation that makes more sense. The amplified version reads like this. How remarkable that the renowned city is not deserted, the city of my joy, exclaims a citizen from Damascus. The idea is that if you lived in Damascus, you lived in what still today is the oldest continuously inhabited city on planet Earth. And that was your claim to fame. Now they, uh, they had enemies, they fell to Babylon and different folk but over the years, but there has always been a presence in Damascus. It's a, just a city that since the second millennium BC has existed. It is as close to an eternal city as you'll get on the Earth. The appeal here by the devil to our flesh is to think that the world will go on as it has. It can be summed up by the question of the scoffers that Peter mentions in his epistle, where is the promise of God's coming seeing everything continues as it always has? If you're not a believer here this morning, 
Part of you has this idea that, well, you know, I hear about judgment and the coming of the Lord, but where's the promise of his coming? Don't you think he would have come by now? Everything's just gonna go on the way it always has. Non-believers don't understand that the delay is because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And Peter, in that same section where he talks about the scoffers, he says, remember the flood, They scoffed then too, and then all of a sudden, one day that door closed, the rain came down, the deep gave up its water, and God's judgment was on. The reveal here is that we have a heavenly city to look forward to, the new Jerusalem. The Lord is there now. He's personally doing the finish work on our mansions. Set your affections there. Look for that city whose builder and maker is God. Our text mentions three more nations surrounding Judah, obscure nations, starting with Kedar and Hazor together. Verse 28, against Kedar and against the kingdoms of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall strike. Thus says the Lord, arise, go up to Kedar and devastate the men of the east. Their tents and their flocks they shall take away. They shall take them for themselves, their curtains and all their vessels and their camels. And they shall cry out to them, fear on every side. Flee, get far away, dwell in the depths. O inhabitants of Hazor, says the Lord, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has taken counsel against you and has conceived a plan against you. Arise, go up to the wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars dwelling alone. Their camels shall be for booty and the multitude of their cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds those in the farthest corners. I will bring their calamity from all its sides, says the Lord. Hazor shall be a dwelling for jackals, a desolation forever. No one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. These are nomadic tribes. They didn't have any cities, uh, but they were a distinct people groups. Uh, and, and they often avoided the conflicts that were going on geopolitically because they didn't really own any land. They could move wherever they were. They were kind of survivalists. Uh, and That's maybe a point of contact for us. We've talked before about what's currently being called the prepper movement. It's those people who see disaster on the horizon and who've decided to try to survive a disaster by storing up stuff for themselves, usually in shelters somewhere, so they can ride out whether it's the economic disaster or the nuclear disaster or whatever. Maybe they are the modern equivalent of Kedar and Hazor as they seek to get away from society and live self-sufficiently. They'll just get out of the city and fend for themselves and be left alone. And there's a certain appeal even sometimes to Christians to try to get away from it all, live under the radar, provide for yourself and protect yourself. Now it's up to each of us individually to determine how prepared we want to be for some disaster. I don't know how much spam or how many bullets are appropriate. That's an individual decision. And I I say it a little bit funny, but I don't think it's wrong to prepare. I do know this. We are to be in the world as salt and light spreading the gospel. Jesus gave us the great commission, which was to go into all the world and as we are going to make disciples of all men. And I know that that's harder to do from a bunker than uh, it is if you're among people. And so the idea that we're just going to get away from everybody, fend for ourselves, defend ourselves, and by ourselves I mean just some small family unit, not really biblical. And so you're going to have to find a balance. If you, if you feel that draw to be a survivalist, you're going to have to figure out how you can also further the kingdom of God. 
Elam is next and last on our list, verse 34, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will break the bow of Elam, foremost of their might. Against Elam, I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, scatter them towards all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go, for I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I'll bring disaster upon them, my fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Elam and will destroy from there the king and the princes, says the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. The judgment against Elam that we're reading about, it's interesting, it hasn't ever been fulfilled in history. I'll tell you who the Elamites are in just a minute. The prophecy speaks of the people being driven off their land and scattered into the world, and that's never happened to this people. And it also speaks of the God of Israel setting his throne in Elam. That hasn't happened. And so this is a future prophecy. Elam was east of Babylon in what is today the country of Iran, ancient Persia. According to one source, the actual location of Elam would be the very northern end of the Persian Gulf down along the west coast of Iran. Today, one of the main sections of ancient Elam would include Boucher province with the capital city of Boucher. Where have we heard that name before? Well, it's ground zero for Iran's nuclear ambitions. It's feared that Iran would use their plant there to help build nuclear weapons to destroy Israel and threaten other nations. Israel has, of course, stated that it will not allow Iran to become a nuclear power, and there's the possibility that Israel will attack Iran to destroy that complex at Boucher. It's also possible that World War III could start over the Boucher nuclear plant. And so ancient Elam that we're reading about is really a focal point in dealing with Israel and it fits directly into God's prophetic plans as the world heads towards the day of the Lord. You know, a lot of people watch the Bible on the History Channel. Did you watch the Bible or see some of it? I saw very small amounts of it. uh, and, And though I think it was great, Uh, the consensus of people I talked to is that it could have been a lot more accurate, uh, that there were a lot of inaccuracies. Now, one thing I did hear about it was that some of the special effects were pretty cool, like the way they portrayed the burning bush from out of which God spoke to Moses. It's one thing to hear about the burning bush or in our generation to be able to see it on the screen, but wouldn't you love to actually have seen it or to have been there when Jericho's walls fell in that miraculous way? Well, you are there for things like that in this sense. God has left enemies for you to defeat the same way previous Bible characters defeated the same enemies walking by faith. There's no appeal from the world or the devil or your flesh that isn't accompanied by some greater reveal by God of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, of his forgiveness, for you to see mighty victories in your life. Where do you need a victory today? Where do you need God to speak to you out of his holy fire or for walls to fall down from inside out for you to stand and march in victory? And that's why we're to keep our friend close and our enemies conquered, amen? Amen.